Last week, we, uh, of course, spent last Sunday morning in our message discussing prayer uh, by way of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 5, verse 13. And this morning, we're going to press on in verses 14 and 15 from the same chapter of Matthew. I have my coffee and my water. I'm ready to go. Just a heads up, though, before we proceed, as difficult as some of these passages uh, from Christ's Sermon on the Mount may have been on the ear so far, I'm not sure this morning's text is going to get any easier on us. Um, last week, we began a discussion on forgiveness in our discussion on the Lord's Prayer, and we're actually going to continue that discussion this morning. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be people who forgive. People who forgive. People who live and forgive. How difficult is it to live and forgive? People have come up with a couple other catchy phrases that maybe sound a little bit like this. Maybe you've heard those before. Uh, Beatle Paul McCartney, for example, once wrote a song entitled Live and Let Die. Some of you remember Live and Let Die. This was for a Roger Moore era James Bond movie of the same name. Uh, some of you may remember that film from the early 70s, or at least the song Live and Let Die. You got Elvis before this was my morning to do that one. In the song, I'm not going to keep singing it, I'll just read it. In the song, McCartney sings, If this ever-changing world in which we live in makes you give in and cry, say, live and let die. This lyric, of course, provides a sarcastic twist to the cliche, live and let live. Another expression somebody came up with over the years. But the Christian, in philosophy, in Opposite, in contrast to, to voicing this sort of live and let die, this hateful nihilism, right, of live and let die, or even encouraging a, a kind of passive tolerance of live and let live, we might say that, sort of passive tolerance, the Christian perhaps might say this, when you're drawn to tears by the world in which you live, say live and forgive. Live and forgive. Turn to Matthew 6, 14 and 15 with me this morning where Christ actually gives us his followers this very advice. Jesus says this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't just suggest it here. He commands us from the mountaintop to say, live and forgive. If we stop and think about this text a bit this morning, it might shock us a little bit, right? It might even make us a, a little argumentative, theologically speaking. As Christians, we might hear these words of Jesus. You know, if you don't forgive others their sins, the, the Father won't forgive your sins. And we might say, but Lord, I'm a Christian. I've done everything you've asked me to be forgiven of my sins. I've repented of those sins, and I've confessed you as my Savior from these sins. Lord, I, I've been baptized even. I had those sins washed away, Lord. You mean to tell me there's more i got to do in this life before I'll be forgiven for my sins? You know, and though the Bible does call us to be obedient to Christ unto death, Revelation 2.10, 
Meaning we, we can't just pray a prayer and take a dunk into water and say we're good with God for eternity. Once we're Christians, we do actually have to follow Jesus. This is true. But please don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here in our text. When Jesus says, if you forgive others, the Heavenly Father will forgive you. Jesus is not implying that we can save ourselves, that our salvation is works-based. That is the grace of God or God's forgiveness of our sins. It's not in any way, shape, or form dependent on what we do. That includes after we become Christians, whether we pass that grace onto others or not. And that's a good thing. Uh, God's not up there saying, well, well, Josh didn't forgive Becky for not making him a ding-dong cake for his last birthday after she promised she would. So I'm not going to forgive Josh for continuing to overindulge in sugar, even though it's, he knows it's bad for his non-alcoholic fatty liver. God's not keeping a scorecard of my continued sins this morning. Praise his name. My sins were forgiven me when Jesus shed his blood on the cross for me, 1 John 1, 7, and offered me his amazing grace, which I accepted. But what Jesus is getting at here in Matthew 6, 14 and 15 is this, as a follower of Christ, as one who has accepted God's grace, I'm now called to extend that grace to others as well. And that point is not negotiable. I'm called to be a person who forgives others. So Christians don't forgive other people's sins so that our sins are forgiven, but Christians forgive other people's sins because our sins have been forgiven. We see how God's grace is supposed to work in our lives. If Christians fail to extend it, Jesus says, how can we truly be people who've received it? One preacher writes, as Christians, we've already asked God to forgive us in the same way we forgive other people. If you're a Christ follower, you're going to want to live and forgive. So what can become of our walk with Jesus? What can become of our personal and working and church relationships and his presence if we're claiming God's forgiveness without practicing God's forgiveness? What can happen when we fail to live and forgive in God's grace? What happens is we're not really living. We're not really living. One Christian counselor writes about conversations he'd had with Christine, a woman in her mid-30s. Christine reported she hadn't seen her parents in many years, yet insisted she got along fine with them. When asked about her childhood, Christine responded that it had been a difficult time. Growing up, her parents were abusive. They would often slap her across the face in anger. There were several occasions Christine's parents locked her in a closet for upsetting them. Christine's father believed this was a godly kind of discipline, but Christine moved out of her parents' house at the age of 16, wanting nothing to do with mom, dad, or God. More recently, Christine's personal failures had taught her that she needed Jesus in her life, and a return to the faith of her youth helped guide her to Christian counseling. The author writes, I explained one day, Christine, you say you've got a short fuse and that you lose your temper more often than you'd like to. I was just wondering if you're still angry with your parents. Christine answered coolly, my parents did the best they could. They thought strictness was the biblical way to bring me up. They never meant to hurt me. 
The author continues, I don't agree. I went on. I don't think they did the best they could do. Child abuse is sin, Christine. They sinned against you. Christine responded, well, I'm supposed to forgive them, right? That's my way of forgiving them. I'm willing to say they did the best they could, and I just avoid seeing them as much as possible. And this counselor writes about his response to Christine. He writes, that's not forgiveness, Christine. Forgiveness is acknowledging everything your parents did to you. Face the fact that your parents treated you very, very badly. And then with God's help, you can forgive them for the worst things they ever did. But watering it all down and then walking away from it is not forgiveness. I'd like to share just a little of this author's conclusion. Christine and I discussed at length the cold, hard facts of her childhood. She prayed that God would forgive her parents for several specific incidents when they deeply wounded her physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And in the months to come, Christine found that her unwelcome rage and short temper were diminishing. Through improved communication and honesty, Christine was eventually able to establish a comfortable adult relationship with both her father and her mother. That's the end of this writing. What made a difference for Christine? What made a difference as this counselor shares with us? Well, to put it simply, Christine had learned to live and forgive. She'd learned to live and forgive. She'd previously borne fruit inconsistent with Christianity. Her sinful anger, her stubbornness, her resisting her parents, resisting those relationships. But now, Christine's acknowledging, accepting, and forgiving those trespasses against her allowed Christine to more fully experience the grace of God in her life. The grace of her Heavenly Father. Matthew 6.14. This is why it's so important as recipients of forgiveness, we pass it on. We pass it on. The letting go of grievances that God has for you and me, it's supposed to change us from the inside out. It's supposed to make a difference in our lives. So let's say, brother, sister, that, that you're like Christine, that you can identify with her in some way with a relationship. This morning, I'm just curious, who are the parents in your situation? Who is it that you need to forgive so that you may experience the grace of God in your life? What situation is keeping you from a closer walk with Jesus? How is grace lacking for you? Maybe you've harbored resentment against a boss, uh, someone who doesn't favor your work like he does the work of the guy next to you. Maybe you feel like you've been treated unfairly in the company. You try not to let it bother you at night when you get home from work, and it's just maybe you, you and your loved ones, but it eats at you, it eats at you. Brother, you're called to live and forgive with the grace of your heavenly Father. And sister, how is grace lacking in your life? Maybe you're still bothered by something a sibling or multiple siblings did to you several years ago. It's driven a wedge between you, driven a wedge between all of you. You wonder why you struggle in, in your God-given relationships and your newfound God-given relationships, but you've never stopped to let God take care of the relationships he gave to you at birth. 
Sister, you're called to live and forgive with the grace of your heavenly Father. Or maybe you're in the exact same situation as Christine. Maybe you've had unforgiven trespasses, caused a lot of unchristian friction between you and your mom, maybe you and your dad. You know, for some of us, maybe it's been just a few years since we've seen our dads. For others, maybe it's been a lifetime. But the reality of the situation for every single person in this room is that we're all going to eventually face our heavenly dad. We're all going to face our heavenly dad. We have shown to our earthly dad and our mom and our brothers and sisters and children and grandchildren and friends and neighbors and tenants and the like, the same forgiveness he's shown to us in this lifetime. Will we? By the way, if, if you don't think keeping a few grudges matters or makes much of a difference from out here in these pews, let me share this with you. In the few years, I know it's not been a lot, but in the few years I've been in full-time pastoral ministry, out of all the doors I've knocked on, phone calls I've made uh, to church visitors that got away or members that may be transferred to another congregation, can you guess what reason I've heard, if not the most prevalent, at least in the top three, for one-time visitors and members now being ex-visitors and ex-members of the church? It goes something like this. I quit going to worship on Sunday because of something somebody said to me in 2007. And the year of offense changes. It's not always 2007. It wasn't just that year for everybody. But I'm not joking. I hear this in some way, shape, or form way too often. When we think of barriers to church growth, I believe the carried grudge is, is a big elephant in the room. Author Carrie Newoff reports unresolved conflict as one of the top seven reasons why churches fail to grow. Much of unresolved conflict boils down to a failure to live and forgive. Because, brothers and sisters, we love the idea of the grace of God. But let's face it, we don't like living the idea of the grace of God. Because somebody made us mad, the preacher or the elder or somebody on the praise team or the lady that used to run the vacuum cleaner, they were all worth leaving the church at some point to somebody. So how do we expect God to bless, give growth to us as individuals, collectively as his church, when we fail to pass on grace? When we fail to pass on grace to the people he's already given us? It starts at home. That's the hard part starts at home. Each and every person that's ever passed through these doors, every set of church building doors is a sinner. Every one of us. And so our living has got to consist of forgiving. I know it's difficult. God expects me to forgive someone who has maybe cost me dearly, who did more than maybe just hurt my feelings, but who may really set me down the wrong path emotionally, may have taken years off my life physically, who may have steered me down the wrong path mentally and spiritually. Maybe some of us who identify with Christine in our story, maybe we have a, a person or group of people in our past that really hurt us. It's a struggle to think of these individuals without singing, live and let die, let alone live and forgive. But as John Piper writes, struggling to forgive is not what destroys us. What destroys us in the faith is the stubborn, settled position that we are not going to forgive. And we intend to cherish the grudge against someone. We 
just want to feel that bitterness. We just want to feel it. It's difficult to forgive. As John Piper notes, there, there's another option for us. There's another option for us besides forgiveness. We, we can choose to be bitter. That's an option. We can, we can uh, spend the rest of the week or month or year or lifetime being bitter about something somebody said or did to us in 2007 or 1997 or 1957. But bitterness is, is a dangerously satanic road. To be on bitterness is not going to get you anywhere you want to be. You might make a note of Hebrews 12, 15. Jesus has shown us letting go of my pride Letting go of my pride, how difficult it may be. Letting go of the self is the only way to go. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross. When we forgive, we follow the one who forgave all. Here's some things. You know, by forgiving doesn't mean we, we blindly trust the one who was abusive like they never abused you. It doesn't mean we enable the one who spread the gossip about you to know all your personal information again. But by forgive, I mean to let go of any personal animosity you may have had about the situation and seek reconciliation with the other party as far as is possible. Romans 12, 18 and Colossians 3, 13. I realize wounds can run deep. They can run pretty deep. I realize we're not always guaranteed reconciliation. When something hurts, it hurts. One preacher tells of a woman who'd been the victim of sexual abuse from a family member she trusted. By the time she came in for counseling, the woman was in her 40s and hadn't yet forgiven the perpetrator. The most difficult part of this experience, the preacher notes was, was that the woman was no longer able to confront the family member and seek an apology, for he had been dead for many years. Preacher writes in this case, the, the woman had to forgive this individual, regardless of the chance for reconciliation. Regardless. In his own words, the bitterness that was consuming her was corrosive to her own spirit. We're not in easy territory. This isn't an easy path, living and forgiving. It's not going to come naturally to us in this broken world. And that's why in our text from last week, if you remember, Jesus made it clear. Christians should be filling our prayers with a desire to learn how to become people who forgive. Verse 12 of Matthew 6, Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Jesus stresses the importance of forgiveness again in Matthew 18 with the parable of the unforgiving servant. And Jesus talks about living and forgiving often because we, his followers, we need to hear about it often. We do. Our spiritual lives and the spiritual lives of those around us depend on it. My second daughter's name is Hannah Grace. And that name didn't, didn't come to uh, my wife and me on accident. Uh, two things brought it to mind when, when we were, were naming this little girl. First and foremost, uh, the Jesus I follow. And secondly, you're not going to believe it, a U2 song by the same name. You're thinking, oh, here we go, more singing this morning. I'm not going to sing it. The U2 song, Grace, contains the following lyric. Grace, it's the name for a girl 
It's also a thought that changed the world. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. My friends, I believe this really hits it on the head. The grace of God has changed the world for us Christians. It, it really has made beauty out of the individual's very ugly situation of sin. The question is, do we allow grace to change the ugly world around us as well? You heard the name Christine earlier in her story and how grace was a thought that changed her world in more ways than one. So what are some other names that go hand in hand with grace? Here's a couple to suggest this morning. How about Joseph? Joseph from Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. Joseph who refused to seek retribution against his brothers for selling him into slavery. Remember Joseph? The story of Joseph and grace. How about Stephen? Stephen from Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Stephen, who prayed directly to God for forgiveness against his persecutors while he was being stoned to death by them. Stephen and grace. What happens in our lives if we, we, we try to do the same with our names? Instead of Josh and resentment or Josh and quick temper or Josh and jealousy, Maybe these other attributes that, that I'm so quick to adopt. Uh, uh, instead, if I uh, adopted Josh and, and Grace, and if each one of us resolved to adopt Grace with our names, that, that if we really became people who were committed to forgiving one another, we might discover real change in our families, in our churches, in our community, in the world around us. In the aftermath of such ugly things as, as uh, what happened over at Mount Pleasant this week. Perhaps this could be a thought that could change the world, right? Who holds us back? Who holds us back from living lives of heavenly grace in a world going to hell? Who holds us back? I know who holds me back. No matter how painful our past may be, we're promised that our present difficulty holds no comparison to future glory. And that's a promise. That's a promise God gives to us. Romans 8, 18. We're promised this. So may we be people who look to future glory by forgiving present trespasses. I'd like to close this morning with a, another story about how forgiveness can truly set us free this very moment, no matter how much it may hurt. If you're a history fan, you might appreciate this story. One author writes, the year was 1947. It was almost two full years after the liberation of Auschwitz. And Corey Ten Boom stepped forward to share the message of forgiveness and healing at a German church. As she stepped forward, Corey prayed that God would use her words to bring about healing forgiveness, and restoration. What she was about to experience changed her life forever. The story continues. As Corey Ten Boom finished her message, a man stepped forward, moving his way through the crowd of people there to speak with her. The man looked familiar. She knew him. As Corey Ten Boom looked into the man's eyes, it became crystal clear she recognized him from the past, the uniform, the whips, 
but walking past him unclothed at the selection. Corey Ten Boom remembered her sister dying a slow and painful death at the man's hands. Suddenly, the memories came flooding back to her, this man who had been a prison guard at the concentration camp. The man said to Corey, I'm a Christian now. With his eyes sadly looking into hers, I know that God has forgiven me, but will you forgive me? The man continued stretching out his hand to receive hers. He continues, Corey stood there for what must have seemed like an eternity, although it was probably only a moment or two. She knew she had to make a choice. Would she forgive this man at whose hand she experienced so much hurt, so much pain, so much humiliation? Could she? And in this writing, the author goes on to describe the prayer of Corey Ten Boom. Jesus, I can lift my hand, she prayed, but I need your help. Within seconds, Corey found herself shaking hands with her former prison guard and declaring out loud, I forgive you, brother, with my whole heart. That very day, the man's trespasses were pardoned. The grace of God was extended. No matter the difficulty in following Jesus, Corey Ten Boom forgave the one who'd imprisoned her in that Nazi concentration camp. Brothers and sisters, no matter the difficulty, you and I can do the same with the ones who have imprisoned us. Some look at this uh, ever-changing, broken world around them, and they say cynically, live and let die. And others try to just get passively by saying, live and let live. Jesus Christ stands on the mount, calls to his followers to adopt a better slogan. As we've been forgiven, may we do the same for those around us. Grace, brothers and sisters, it's truly the only way for us to live. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning we, we come to you as sinners. We know, Lord, there's not, a, there's not a person in this room that's perfect. Every day we, we stumble. We stumble in many ways. We stumble in all kinds of ways, the Bible tells us. But it also tells us, and we know this, Lord, that if we are in you, those sins have been forgiven. Forgiven us thousands of years ago at that cross of Calvary. Lord, there's nothing we can do to change the fact that grace is offered to us. You extend it. It's up to us to accept it. We thank you, Lord, for, for your love, for your mercy. We, we can't understand it and we fail and we fall so short of it, Lord. But we are thankful. 
Lord, I pray that, that we in our communities, in our homes, in all of our relationships, that we would learn to be people of grace. It doesn't come to us easily. Lord, we want our rights. We want, we want, we want justified. We want, we want to even the score. Help us, Lord, to remember that the score has already been even for us. Help us to remember, Lord, that grace is meant to be lived. God, we thank you for, for the hope we have in you. And we pray that as we go out into this world, we witness to others, they will see that grace in the way we respond. Help us, Lord, to see others the way you see them as people who are deserving of grace. And we praise, praise your name this morning for who you are and for revealing yourself as a God of grace in your word. And it is in that holy name of Jesus Christ. I pray these things, amen. This life is gonna hurt. There's no, there's no guarantee that that it won't. In fact, it's kind of a guarantee that, that it will. But if we know Jesus Christ, he has overcome the world of hurt for us. And so this morning, we'd like to extend an invitation to you. If you've, if you've not put on that grace of God, we invite you to come forward and be immersed into those waters of baptism. Come out a new creature person who has received that grace or if you have another public decision you'd like to make this morning maybe you like to rededicate yourself this morning maybe you'd like to uh, maybe you're already a baptized believer and you'd like to uh, come forward and place your membership with with us this morning here at Ferris Church of Christ just say I want to uh, live and serve make mistakes with these people if you have a public decision you'd like to make we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.